The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Saturday saw hundreds killed by the Palestinian group Hamas at a music festival in the desert close to the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, many hundreds of Hamas gunmen entered the state of Israel, shooting indiscriminately at both security forces and civilians, and then taking Israeli hostages back into Gaza. And as you know, Israel swiftly retaliated, declaring war against Hamas. Now, while the events of the weekend are shocking, they're not out of the blue, with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict taking back as far as the 19th century. So to get an understanding of how the stage was set for this latest uh, violent chapter, we are joined by Scott Lucas, Professor of US Politics at the Clinton Institute at UCD. Scott, good morning. Very good morning to you, Pat. Now, first of all, uh, the reaction to what happened at the weekend, Israel taking taken totally by surprise. Absolutely. Uh, What we have, there's mounting evidence that there were weeks of planning between Hamas, as well as the Lebanese organization Hezbollah, and the uh, Iranian military. And they agreed uh, just a week ago that the time was right to make this attack. And for some reason, I think a lot to do with the domestic instability in Israel under Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, either the security services and the military didn't pick up the mobilization for this attack, or there was information that they had gathered about this attack, but when they passed it up the chain to military commanders and politicians, they didn't act. And so what we saw that was distinctive from other uh conflicts between Israel and Gaza, and we've seen them in 2008, we saw it in 2014, was that Hamas not only struck with thousands of rockets, it struck with these ground assaults. Uh, These ground assaults occupied a series of towns close to the um, Gaza border, and significantly for the first time, Hamas carried out mass killing of civilians with those ground assaults. Civilians have been killed by rocket attacks in the past, but never in sort of a indiscriminate, as you described it, or maybe even a planned way to cause terror. And that's really what's changed the dynamic of this. Uh, Israel mm-hmm. will respond. It will hit uh, Hamas inside Gaza. There will be civilians who will die from those bombing attacks. And the question really is, the core question is, is how quickly can this be contained to limit uh, the killing on both sides uh, to get Hamas and Israel to pull back? Uh, I can't tell you right now whether that's going to be the short term or whether we're in for a, a conflict mm. which could go weeks and even months. The idea of the Israeli army going in uh, and pursuing a ground war in Gaza against uh, Hamas, I mean, two effects. One is many people will be killed, um, both Israeli soldiers and uh, ordinary Palestinian civilians as well as Hamas uh, militants. So all of this is going to happen unless somebody cries stop but very hard to cry stop against the background of 250 festival goers, 260 being massacred. And that's what it was. Exactly. I mean, I, I think in previous conflicts that I've covered, again, 2008, 2014 come to mind. You know, Hamas had killed civilians with these rocket attacks. But you look at the Israeli response and a lot of people could say, I think justifiably, it was indiscriminate. Uh, Even though the Israelis tended to rely on air action, they don't really want to launch an all-out ground assault into Gaza because it could just expand the conflict. Um, You know, the killing of thousands of Gazans that took place then. This time, when you actually have no, and there is no military target that Hamas was hitting, 
when it hits these concert goers, when it was hitting families in their homes, when it was hitting people in the street, then I think the balance of, let's say, responsibility shifts onto Hamas, not Palestinians, but onto Hamas. What I think this means is, Pat, is that the Israelis are not likely to go with a ground assault into Gaza, look to the political front with attempts to get the international community to isolate Hamas, to isolate Iran, to say that this is not acceptable, and to start to try to build up and support a Palestinian leadership that is not Hamas. And that's going to be difficult. That's going to be that's something that's mm. occupied the community for many years. But I think you have got to look at a Palestinian leadership and a Palestinian system of governance in which Hamas is gradually excluded if we're going to get stability, not only in Israel, but in the Palestinian mm. territories. Now, that sounds like years now, of work like rather than... Um, something that could be achieved in in weeks. So in the meantime, we're going to have more and more victims uh, created. Um, Netanyahu fighting for his political skin because one way or the other, his government will be blamed for the deficit in, in intelligence. Um, so how how would that process come about? Well, I think first of all, and I'm just going to say this bluntly, and I know the reaction I get, I might get. Netanyahu's got to go. Uh, Netanyahu, Netanyahu, I think, has got to go for a number of reasons. First of all, you could blame him for the failure uh, of responsibility in which Hamas has attacked. You could blame him for setting up the conditions for Hamas's attack with his attempt to effectively make the Israeli judicial system his servant so he could escape conviction on bribery charges. And in so doing, absolutely tearing Israeli society apart for weeks, in fact, for months, uh, giving Hamas an opportunity because it saw divided Israel. And Netanyahu's got to go because he has really stood against any constructive process to get a solution for a stable Israel and a stable Palestine going back more than a decade. Uh, Netanyahu does not want to reach a settlement with Palestine. He doesn't want a Palestinian state, so he's a barrier. So I think he has got to go. I think Hamas has got to go. And that means that you need not only the standard countries, it's not just a question of the U.S. and Europe, it's a question of the Arab states, finally at this point, not just simply posing that they support the Palestinian people, when in fact they've used them as pawns, but they actually buy in to a process, a political process. It's making sure that the Russians are on the sidelines uh, because they will try to mess around uh, to divert from the Ukraine conflict. It means getting China's support to bring them into this process as well. In other words, you need an international community that sees this as a catalyst. We have had these types of conflicts back to the creation of Israel in 1948. So we're talking 75 years. If you do not act, and you do not act in a multilateral way with people on all sides coming together, we will have a Groundhog's Day of these violent conflicts happening again and again and again. Now, you mentioned the formal creation of the State of Israel in 1948, but in fact, uh, the, the, the problem of finding a homeland for Jewish people, I mean, they had uh, a diaspora which brought them all over Europe. Um, that problem of finding a homeland goes back to the 19th century. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the 19th century, you had the first, um, you know, sort of Jewish thinkers who were saying, you know, both for the, the the religious reasons, for the cultural reasons, and for political reasons, we need to get back to where we started, which is, of course, you know, the, the lands of Judea and Samaria. But while the Jewish people were looking for homelands there, you had a people who already had a homeland there, who were the Palestinians. And the fundamental question is, how do you put both peoples into that same bit of territory? And that was 
uh, something that was exacerbated by World War One. It was exacerbated by Jews being persecuted and having to leave parts of Europe and uh, therefore increasing the pressure for them to live somewhere. And of course, it was exacerbated by the Holocaust and, you know, the killing of millions of Jews. You know, where can you have this secure space? When Israel was created in 1948, it might have been the vision of this space for Jews in terms of not just a homeland, but a state. But you displaced hundreds of thousands, eventually millions of Palestinians. When you talk about the descendants who no longer had their houses, no longer had their businesses, no longer had their schools. And today you've got almost six million uh, Palestinian refugees, the largest group of stateless people in the world. Meanwhile, you've got 9.3 million Israelis, not just Jews, but Arabs, with the question of can they live in security both within the country, but also secure from attacks from outside. Now, this is reminiscent in some ways of the plantations of Ireland where Irish people were usurped from their homes and uh, sent off to to hell or to Connacht, as uh, Cromwell put it. But um, the the idea of uh, Jewish people arriving in uh, say, the early 20th century in the Middle East, uh, were some of them, when they arrived first, in a position literally to buy homes, to make offers that, you know, uh, local people would not refuse, and therefore uh, they they quite legitimately achieved homes there. And then, of course, with the, the, the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948, you had people arriving who were not buying, but who were just being planted. Well, I mean, the whole process, you know, in the 20s and the 30s and, and, and the ways that, that Jews acquired property, you know, that's still disputed today as to whether it was completely legal means, whether there was shady business going on. But the fact is they got deeds to the property, whereas you were in a culture, in a Palestinian culture, in many cases, where people did not have formal titles to where they lived. So they were left them in a bit of limbo. But, you know, let us be honest here that, you know, when you have the fact that Jews, not just the fact that six million Jews are killed, uh, during, before and during World War II, but that, you know, you have other Jews who are driven from their homes and there's no prospect of returning there, that there's entire countries that are almost, quote, cleansed of Jews. I hate that term, but that's what it was. Then, you know, where do they live? And, you know, the question here is, and I think you have to separate this, is the fact that you do need a secure space for both Jewish people and for Palestinian people. And then you had leaderships that were willing to exploit this, that were willing to fight wars, that were willing to try to make economic profit off of these people. And that is compounded by the fact that when you had the Palestinians who lived in two areas, they live in the West Bank, which is part of Jordan, um, uh, immediately after World War II. They live in Gaza, which is part of Egypt, immediately after World War II. In the 1967 war, Israel occupies those two areas. And the fact that Israel continues to occupy those two areas, even though they formally withdrew settlements from Gaza in 2005, you always had that prospect with the Israeli occupation happening that the conflict will continue. And what happened specifically in in Gaza, to bring this up to date, is, is that even though Israel withdrew in 2005, they maintained a fairly tight hold on the area in terms of a blockade linked to Hamas taking leadership of that area in 2007, because the argument was, as long as Hamas is in control of Gaza, Israel said it wouldn't feel safe. And it's sort of that interaction, that poisonous dynamic between the Israeli leadership and Hamas, 
which has not only kept two million Gazans in a state of deprivation, but always laid the seeds of the possibility of violence at any point, as we've seen this past weekend. Um, one of my listeners wants you to explain the difference and the dynamic between Fatah and Hamas. Is it like Sinn Féin and the provisional IRA, or are they separate entirely? They are now effectively separate political organizations, although they stem from the Palestinian movement. Um, they become parties who not only are different, they actually uh, involved in a fight against each other. Hamas defeated Fatah to take control of Gaza in 2007-2008. Hamas did win elections there, but there was a subsequent armed conflict where uh, Fatah was pushed out. Now, Fatah is the main party in what's called the Palestinian Authority. Now, that's the governing body in the West Bank. So what you have is not one Palestinian territory. You've got two very distinct Palestinian territories, Hamas, Hamas ruling over Gaza, Fatah through the Palestinian Authority ruling over the West Bank. And I think both of those leaderships are seen by many Palestinians as not just simply failing to protect them because of their rivalry, because they fight with each other, but also seen as being economically suspect. Let's put it this way. And there really is a need. Uh, a need for an alternative Palestinian movement, and we have seen them being developed in recent years, an alternative Palestinian movement to look for responsible governance, to look for responsible provision of services, as well as maintaining that drive for a Palestinian state. Now, uh, the two-state solution, which is uh, the the one that is broadly proposed uh, by those who see beyond the horizon, but when you look at the map, it's very difficult. You've got two different territories which are not linked um, on the ground. And it's hard to see how a two-state solution could be any kind of a permanent solution. Well, certainly it's not a permanent solution when you have both sides thinking that at any point, uh, well, we could be, you know, the Palestinians thinking we could be attacked by Israel and Israel thinking we could be attacked by Palestinians. Uh, back in the 1950s, the Americans proposed to link uh, Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, they, they proposed an overpass linking the two countries. And they were quickly told by both uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians or Israelis and Arabs why that wouldn't work. It comes back to this fundamental path that you have to start off with that their people in Palestine, people in Israel, have the right to their respective governments. Indeed, they have the right to their respective states, but they have the right to security. And you need to have, therefore, a security commitment, which is backed up by the international community that quite clearly says, look, an attack on Israel by a Palestinian organization will not be tolerated, and an attack on Palestine, a Palestinian state by Israel, will not be tolerated. We are, however, a long way from that. It is possible. There are groups both in Israel and Palestine who are trying to make it possible. So I think what you have to do is, is that in the interim, is to rebuild those cross-border efforts between local community groups. Because remember, again, there are many Arabs as well as Jews that live in Israel. They coexist there. You need to build up cross-border efforts. You need to build up educational initiatives. You need to build up civic society initiatives on the ground. And you need to get responsible political leaderships that will allow those to develop. 
The question, uh, Scott, of, uh, I heard it articulated earlier this morning, you know, why would Hamas do this, knowing the wrath of Israel will be brought down upon the heads of not just uh, Hamas militants, but also on the ordinary Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. And it was suggested that this is just um, to become a recruiting sergeant for the next generation of young people who will join Hamas. It's linked. It's opportunity linked to the need to try to maintain authority. Uh, the opportunity, as Hamas saw it, and again, I emphasize not just Hamas, but also uh, Iran's leadership, was that Israel has been fractured by this domestic conflict for months because of Prime Minister Netanyahu primarily, uh, that Israel was being distracted from uh, its security uh, provisions security arrangements because of that internal battle, which extended to the point that many Israeli reservists were saying they would not serve while Netanyahu was still in power. And so Hamas thought, we can strike now. That's linked to the need for authority. Because Hamas, what Hamas cannot give Gazans, have not been able to give Gazans, partly because of the Israeli blockade, partly because of the failures of their leadership, they cannot give them public services. They cannot give them water. They cannot give them electricity. They cannot give them decent education. They can't give them decent health care. Hamas is not seen as being responsible by many Gazans. So how do they maintain the fact we are still the people who need to be in charge here? You go after Israel and you try to declare a victory. That's why Hamas hit at this point. Um, They have succeeded at least in 48 hours at building up that idea that they can hit Israel. But I think looking down the road, Pat, whether it's a week, whether it's a month, whether it's several months, this will backfire on Hamas. There will be no way out from them because they will isolate themselves. Iran will isolate itself, given the nature of how Hamas attacked. And then again, the question will be, if Hamas is increasingly isolated, how does it then try to cling on to power in the next cycle? Well, it's extraordinary. They can't do this, they can't do that, they can't do the other for their population, but they can somehow procure thousands and thousands and thousands of rockets uh, to peg over at uh, Israel. Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Scott Lucas, Professor of US Politics at the Clinton Institute at UCD. Uh, Some of the comments coming in on this. Uh, Hamas are the equivalent of the provisional IRA. Bomb and kill your way to the table and you end up in government running the country. Uh, Cheers, says Paul. Uh, The UN as a lame duck institution will remain so as long as you have countries with a veto. The solution for the Palestinians is a two-state solution. The Israelis don't want that. They would not be able to expand their territory in future, says Tom. Uh, The only ones to blame for this are the Western governments who support the apartheid regime in Israel. The blood is on their hands. And a final one for the moment from Chris. We said never again after the Holocaust, and now it's happening again, while families are dragged from their homes to God knows what. Shame on Palestine for electing the Hamas thugs, and shame on Ireland for supporting them. Uh, That's from Chris. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.